0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We have two great O. Henry stories for you today. The first, Modern Rural Sports, and the second story, A Retrieved Reformation, and I think you'll enjoy them both. And now, our story. Jeff Peters must be reminded, whenever he is called upon, pointedly, for a story, he will maintain that his life has been as devoid of incident as the longest of Trollope's novels. "'But lured, he will divulge. "'Therefore I cast many and diverse flies "'upon the current of his thoughts "'before I feel a nibble. "'I notice,' said I, "'that the western farmers, "'in spite of their prosperity, "'are running after their old populistic idols again. "'It's the running season,' said Jeff, "'for farmers, shad, maple trees, "'and the Connemoc River. "'I know something about farmers. "'I thought I struck one once "'that had got out of the rut.' "'but Andy Tucker proved to me I was mistaken. "'Once a farmer, always a sucker,' said Andy. "'He's the man that's shoved into the front row among the bullets. "'Bullets and the ballot. "'He's the funny bone and gristle of the country,' said Andy. "'And I don't know what we would do without him.' "'One morning, me and Andy wakes up with sixty-eight cents between us "'in a yellow pine hotel on the edge of the pre-digested hoe-cake belt "'of southern Indiana.' How we got off the train there the night before, I can't tell you, for she went through the village so fast that what looked like a saloon to us through the car window turned out to be a composite view of a drugstore and a water tank two blocks apart. Why we got off at the first station we could belongs to a little Oroide gold watch, an Alaska diamond deal we failed to pull off the day before, over the Kentucky line. When I woke up, I heard roosters crowing and smelt something like the fumes of nitro-muriatic acid and heard something heavy fall on the floor below us. "'and a man swearing. "'Cheer up, Andy,' says I. "'We're in a rural community. "'Someone has just tested a gold brick downstairs. "'We'll go out and get what's coming to us from a farmer, "'and then, yoikes, and away. "'Farmers was always a kind of reserve fun for me. "'Whenever I was in hard luck, I'd go to the crossroads, "'hook a finger in a farmer's suspender, "'recite the prospectus of my swindle "'in a mechanical kind of way, "'look over what he had, "'give him back his keys,' whetstone and papers that was of no value except to the owner and stroll away without asking any questions. Farmers are not fair game to me as high up in our business as me and Andy was but there was times when we found them useful just as Wall Street does the secretary of the treasury now and then. When we went downstairs we saw we was in the midst of the finest farming section we ever seen. About two miles away on a hill was a big white house in a grove, surrounded by a widespread agricultural agglomeration of fields and barns and pastures and outhouses. Whose house is that? we asked the landlord. That, says he, is the domicile and the arboreal terrestrial and horticultural accessories of farmer Ezra Blunkett, one of our country's most progressive citizens. After breakfast, me and Andy, with eight cents capital left, cast the horoscope of the rural potentate. Let me go alone, says I. Two of us against one farmer would look as one-sided as Roosevelt using both hands to kill a grizzly. All right, says Andy. I like to be a true sport, even when I'm only collecting rebates from the rutabag raisers. What bait are you going to use for this Ezra thing? Andy asks me. Oh, I says, the first thing that come to hand in the suitcase. I reckon I'll take along some of the new income tax receipts and the recipe for making clover honey out of clabber and apple peelings. And the order blanks for the McGuffey's Readers, which afterwards turned out to be McCormick's Reapers. And the pearl necklace found on the train, and a pocket sized gold brick, and a. Th- that'll be enough, says Andy. Any one of the lot ought to land on Ezra. And say, Jeff, make that succotash fancier give you nice, clean, new bills. It's a disgrace to our Department of Agriculture, Civil Service, and pure food law, the kind of stuff some of these farmers hand out to use. I've had to take rolls from them that looked like bundles of microbe cultures captured out of a Red Cross ambulance. So I goes to a livery stable and hires a buggy on my looks. I drive out to the Plunkett Farm and hitched. There was a man sitting on the front steps of the house. He had on a white flannel suit, a diamond ring, golf cap, and a pink ascot tie. Summer border, says I to myself. I'd like to see Farmer Ezra Plunkett, says I to him. You see him, says he. What seems to be on your mind? I never answered a word. I stood still, repeating to myself the rollicking lines of that merry jingle, the man with the hoe. When I looked at this farmer, the little devices I had in my pocket for bunkoing the pushed back brow seemed as hopeless as trying to shake down the beef trust with a minimus and a parlor rifle. Well, says he, looking at me close. Speak up. I see the left pocket of your coat sags a good deal. Out with the gold brick first. I'm rather more interested in the bricks than I am in the trick 60-day notes in the lost silver mine story. I had a kind of cerebral sensation of foolishness in my ideas of radiocination, but I pulled out the little brick and unwrapped my handkerchief of it. One dollar and eighty cents, says the farmer, hefting it in his hand. Is it a trade? The leaden is worth more than that, says I, dignified. I put it back in my pocket. All right, says he, but I sort of wonder for the collection I'm starting. I got a $5,000 one last week for $2.10. Just then a telephone bell rings in the house. Come in, bunk, says the farmer. And look at my place. It's kind of lonesome here sometimes. I think that's New York calling. We went inside. The room looked like a Broadway stockbroker's. Light oak desks, two phones, Spanish leather upholstered chairs and couches, oil paintings in gilt frames a foot deep, and a ticker hitting off the news in one corner. Hello, hello, says this funny farmer. Is that the Regent Theater? Yes, this is Plunkett of Woodbine Center. Reserve four orchestra seats for Friday evening, my usual ones. Yes, Friday. Goodbye. I run over to New York every two weeks to see a show, says the farmer, hanging up the receiver. I catch the 18-hour flyer at Indianapolis, spend 10 hours in the heyday of night on the Yappian Way, and get home in time to see the chickens go to roost 48 hours later. Oh, the pristine Hubbard Squasharino of the cave-dwelling period is getting geared up some for the annual meeting of the Don't Blow Out the Gas Association. Don't you think, Mr. Bunk? I seem to perceive, says I, a kind of hiatus in the agrarian traditions in which heretofore I have reposed confidence. Sure, Bunk, says he. The yellow primrose on the river's brim is getting to look to us rubes like a holiday edition deluxe of the language of flowers with decal edges and frontispiece. Just then the telephone calls him again. Hello, hello, says he. Oh, that's Perkins at Middell. I told you 800 was too much for that horse. Have you got him there? Good. Let me see him. Get away from the transmitter. Now make him trot in a circle. Faster. Yes, I can hear him. Keep on. Faster yet. That'll do. Now lead him up to the phone. Closer. Closer. Get his nose nearer there. Now, wait. No, I don't want that horse. What? No, not at any price. He interferes. And he's windbroken. Goodbye. Now, bunk, says the farmer. Do you begin to realize that agriculture has had a haircut? You belong in a bygone era. Why, Tom Lawson himself knows better than to try to catch an up-to-date agriculturalist napping. It's Saturday the 14th on the farm. You bet. Now, look here and see how we keep up with the day's doings. He shows me a machine on a table with two things for your ears like penny-in-the-slot affairs. I puts it on and listens. A female voice starts up, reading headlines of murders, accidents, and other political casualties. What you hear, says the farmer, is a synopsis of today's news in the New York, Chicago, St. Louis, and San Francisco papers. It's wired into our rural news bureau and served hot to subscribers. On this table you see the principal dailies and weeklies of the country. Also a special service of advanced sheets of the monthly magazines. I picks up one sheet and sees that it's headed Special Advanced Proofs in July 1909, The Century Will Say, and so forth. The farmer rings up somebody, his manager I reckon, and tells him to let that herd of 15 jerseys go at 600 a head and to sow the 900 acre field in wheat and have two hundred extra cans ready at the station for the milk trolley car. Then he passes the Henry Clay's and sets out a bottle of green chartreuse, and goes over and looks at the ticker tape. Ah, consolidated gas up two points, says he. Oh, very well. Ever monkey with copper? I asks. Stand back, says he, raising his hand, or I'll call the dog. I told you not to waste your time. After a while, he says... "'Bunk, if you don't mind my telling you, "'your company begins to cloy slightly. "'I got to write an article on the chimera of communism for a magazine "'and attend a meeting of the Racetrack Association this afternoon. "'Of course you understand by now that you can't get my proxy for your remedy, "'whatever that is.' "'Well, sir, all I could think of to do was go out and get in the buggy. "'The horse turned round and took me back to the hotel. "'I hitched him and went in to see Andy. "'In his room I told him about this farmer, word for word.' "'and I sat picking at the table cover "'like one bereft of sagaciousness. "'I don't understand it,' says I, "'humming a sad and foolish little song "'to cover my humiliation. "'Andy walks up and down the room for a long time, "'biting the left end of his mustache, "'as he does when he's in the act of thinking. "'Jeff,' says he, finally, "'I believe your story of this expurgated rustic, "'but I am not convinced. "'It looks incredulous to me "'that he could have inoculated himself "'against all the preordained systems "'of bucolic bunco." "'Now you never regarded me as a man of special religious proclivities, "'did you, Jeff?' says Andy. "'Well,' says I, "'no. "'But,' says I, "'not to wound his feelings. "'I have also observed many church members whose said proclivities were not so outwardly developed "'that they would show on a white handkerchief "'if you rubbed them with it. "'I've always been a deep student of nature, "'from creation down,' says Andy, "'and I believe in the ultimatum design of providence.' Farmers was made for purpose, and that was to furnish a livelihood to men like me and you. Else, why was we given brains? It's my belief that the manna that the Israelites lived on for forty years in the wilderness was only a figurative word for farmers, and they kept up the practice to this day. And now, says Andy, I'm going to test my theory. Once a farmer, always a come on, in spite of the veneering and the orifices that a spurious civilization has brought to him. "'You'll fall, same as I did,' says I. "'This one shook off the shackles of the sheepfold. "'He's entrenched behind the advantages of electricity, "'education, literature, and intelligence.' "'I'll try it anyway,' said Andy. "'There are certain laws of nature that free rural delivery can't overcome.' Andy fumbles around a while in the closet and comes out dressed in a suit with brown and yellow checks as big as your hand. His vest is red with blue dots, and he wears a high silk hat. I noticed he'd soaked his sandy mustache in a kind of blue ink. Great Barnum's, says I. You're a ringer for a circus thimble rig man. Right, says Andy. Is the buggy outside? Wait here till I come back. I won't be long. Two hours afterwards, Andy steps into the room and lays a wad of money on the table. $860, says he. Let me tell you, he was in. He looked me over and began to guy me. "'I didn't say a word, but got out the walnut shells "'and began to roll the little ball on the table. "'I whistled a tune or two, and then I started up the old formula. "'Step up lively, gentlemen,' says I, "'and watch the little ball. "'It costs you nothing to look. "'There you see it, and there you don't. "'Guess where the little joker is. "'The quickness of the hand deceives the eye. "'I steals a look at the farmer man. "'I see the sweat coming out on his forehead.' He goes over and closes the front door and watches me some more. Directly he says, I'll bet you 20 I can pick the shell the ball's under right now. After that, goes on Andy. There's nothing new to relate. He only had 860 in cash in the house. When I left, he followed me to the gate. There was tears in his eyes when he shook hands. Bunk, says he, Thank you for the only real pleasure I've had in years. It brings up happy old days when I was only a farmer and not an agriculturalist. God bless you. Here Jeff Peters ceased, and I inferred that his story was done. Then you think? I began. Yes, said Jeff. Something like that. He let the farmers go ahead and amuse themselves with politics. Farming's a lonesome life, and they've been against the shell game before. We'll return to our second O'Henry story right after these sponsor messages. And now, A Retrieved Reformation, by O. Henry. A guard came to the prison shoe shop, where Jimmy Valentine was assiduously stitching uppers, and escorted him to the front office. There, the warden handed Jimmy his pardon, which had been signed that morning by the governor. Jimmy took it in a tired kind of way. He had served nearly ten months of a four-year sentence. He had expected to stay only about three months, at the longest, when a man with as many friends on the outside as Jimmy Valentine had is received in the stir. "'It's hardly worth while to cut his hair. "'Now, Valentine,' said the warden, "'you'll go out in the morning. "'Brace up and make a man of yourself. "'You're not a bad fellow at heart. "'Stop cracking safes and live straight.' "'Me?' said Jimmy, in surprise. "'Why, I never cracked a safe in my life.' "'Oh, no!' laughed the warden. "'Of course not. "'Let's see now. "'How was it you happened to get sent up "'on that Springfield job?' Was it because you wouldn't prove an alibi for fear of compromising somebody in an extremely high toned society? Or was it simply a case of a mean old jury that headed in for you? It's always one or the other with you innocent victims. Me? said Jimmy, still blankly virtuous. Why, Warden, I never was in Springfield in my life. Take him back, Cronin, said the Warden, and fix him up without going clothes. Unlock him at seven in the morning, and let him come to the bullpen. "'Better think over my advice, Valentine.' "'At a quarter past seven on the next morning, "'Jimmy stood in the warden's outer office. "'He had on a suit of the villainously fitting, ready-made clothes "'and a pair of the stiff, squeaky shoes "'that the state furnishes to its discharged, compulsory guests. "'The clerk handed him a railroad ticket and the five-dollar bill "'with which the law expected him to rehabilitate himself "'into good citizenship and prosperity. "'The warden gave him a cigar and shook hands.' "'Valentine, 9762, was chronicled on the books, "'pardoned by Governor, "'and Mr. James Valentine walked out into the sunshine. "'Disregarding the song of the birds, "'the waving green trees, "'and the smell of the flowers, "'Jimmy headed straight for a restaurant. "'There he tasted the first sweet joys of liberty "'in the shape of a broiled chicken "'and a bottle of white wine, "'followed by a cigar a grade better "'than the one the warden had given him. "'From there he proceeded leisurely to the depot.' "'He tossed a quarter into the hat of a blind man sitting by the door "'and boarded his train. Three hours set him down in a little town near the state line. "'He went to the café of one Mike Dolan "'and shook hands with Mike, who was alone behind the bar. "'Sorry we couldn't make it sooner, Jimmy me boy,' said Mike, "'but we had that protest from Springfield to buck against, "'and the governor nearly baked. "'Feeling all right?' "'Feeling fine,' said Jimmy. "'Got my key?' He got his key and went upstairs, unlocking the door of a room at the rear. Everything was just as he had left it. There on the floor was still Ben Price's collar button that had been torn from that eminent detective's shirt band when they had overpowered Jimmy to arrest him. Pulling out from the wall a folding bed, Jimmy slid back a panel in the wall and dragged out a dust-covered suitcase. He opened this and gazed fondly at the finest set of burglar's tools in the East. It was a complete set, made of specially tempered steel the latest designs in drills, punches, braces and bits, jimmies, clamps and augers, with two or three novelties, invented by Jimmy himself, in which he took pride. Over nine hundred dollars they had cost him to have made it, mm, a place where they make such things for the profession. In half an hour, Jimmy went downstairs and through the café. He was now dressed in tasteful and well-fitting clothes and carried his dusted and clean suitcase in his hand. "'Got anything going?' asked Mike Dolan genially. Me? said Jimmy, in a puzzled tone. I don't understand. I'm representing the New York Amalgamated Short Snap Biscuit Cracker and Frazzled Wheat Company. This statement delighted Mike to such an extent that Jimmy had to take a seltzer and milk on the spot. He never touched hard drinks. A week after the release of Valentine, number 9762, there was a neat job of safe burglary done in Richmond, Indiana, with no clue to the author. A scant $800 was all that was secured. Two weeks after that, a patented, improved, burglar-proof safe in Logansport was opened like a cheese to the tune of $1,500. Currency, securities, and silver untouched. That began to interest the road catchers. Then an old-fashioned bank safe in Jefferson City became active and threw out of its crater an eruption of bank notes amounting to $5,000. The losses were now high enough to bring the matter up into Ben Price's class of work. By comparing notes, a remarkable similarity in the methods of the burglars was noticed. Ben Price investigated the scenes of the robberies and was heard to remark, That's dandy Jim Ballantyne's autograph. Look at that combination knob, jerked out as easy as pulling up a radish in wet weather. He's got the only clamps that can do it. And look how clean those tumblers were punched out. Jimmy never has to drill but one hole. Yes, I guess I want Mr. Ballantyne. He'll do his bit next time without any short time or clemency foolishness. Ben Price knew Jimmy's habits. He had learned them while working on the Springfield case. Long jumps, quick getaways, no Confederates, and a taste for good society. These ways had helped Mr. Valentine to become noted as a successful dodger of retribution. It was given out that Ben Price had taken up the trail of the elusive cracksman, and other people with burglar-proof safes felt more at ease. One afternoon, Jimmy Valentine and his suitcase climbed out of the mail hack in Elmore, a little town five miles off the railroad down in the blackjack country of Arkansas. Jimmy, looking like an athletic young senior just home from college, went down the board sidewalk toward the hotel. A young lady crossed the street, passed him at the corner, and entered a door over which was the sign, The Elmore Bank. Jimmy Valentine looked into her eyes, forgot what he was, and became another man. She lowered her eyes and colored slightly. Young men of Jimmy's style and looks were scarce in Elmore. Jimmy collared a boy that was loafing on the steps of the bank as if he were one of the stockholders and began to ask him questions about the town, feeding him dimes at intervals. By and by, the young lady came out, looking royally unconscious of the young man with the suitcase, and went on her way. "'Isn't that young lady Polly Simpson?' asked Jimmy, with a specious guile. No nah, said the boy. "'She's Annabelle Adams. Her pa owns this bank. "'Why'd you come to Elmore for? "'Is that a gold watch chain? "'I'm going to get a bulldog. "'Got any more dimes?' "'Jimmy went to the planter's hotel, "'registered as Ralph D. Spencer, "'and engaged a room. "'He leaned on the desk and declared his platform to the clerk. "'He said he'd come to Elmore to look for a location to go into business. "'How was the shoe business now, in the town? "'He had thought of the shoe business. "'Was there an opening?' "'The clerk was impressed by the clothes and manner of Jimmy. "'He himself was something of a pattern of fashion "'to the thinly gilded youth of Elmore, "'but he now perceived his shortcomings. "'While trying to figure out Jimmy's manner "'of tying his four in hand, he cordially gave information. "'Yes, there ought to be a good opening in the shoe line. "'There wasn't an exclusive shoe store in the place. "'The dry goods at General Stores handled them. "'Business in all lines was fairly good. "'Hoped Mr. Spencer would decide to locate an Elmore.' He would find it a pleasant town to live in, and the people very sociable. Mr. Spencer thought he would stop over in the town a few days and look over the situation. No, the clerk needn't call the boy. He would carry up his suitcase himself. It was rather heavy. Mr. Ralph Spencer, the phoenix that arose from Jimmy Valentine's ashes, ashes left by the flame of a sudden and alterative attack of love, remained in Elmore and prospered. He opened a shoe store and secured a good run of trade. Socially, he was also a success, and made many friends, and he accomplished the wish of his heart. He met Miss Annabel Adams, and became more and more captivated by her charms. At the end of a year, the situation of Mr. Ralph Spencer was this. He had won the respect of the community, his shoe store was flourishing, and he and Annabel were engaged to be married in two weeks. Mr. Adams, the typical, plodding, country banker, approved of Spencer. Annabel's pride in him almost equaled her affection. He was as much at home in the family of Mr. Adams and that of Annabelle's married sister as if he were already a member. One day Jimmy sat down in his room and wrote this letter, which he mailed to the safe address of one of his old friends in St. Louis. Dear old pal, I want you to be at Sullivan's place in Little Rock next Wednesday night at nine o'clock. I want you to wind up some little matters for me. And also, I want you to make a present of my kit of tools. I know you'll be glad to get them. You couldn't complicate the lot for a thousand dollars. Say, Billy, I've quit the old business, a year ago. I've got a nice store. I'm making an honest living, and I'm going to marry the finest girl on earth two weeks from now. It's the only life, Billy, the straight one. I wouldn't touch a dollar of another man's money now for a million. After I get married, I'm going to sell out and go west, where there won't be so much danger of having old scores brought up against me. I tell you, Billy, she's an angel. "'She believes in me, and I wouldn't do another crooked thing for the whole world. "'Be sure to be at Sully's, for I must see you. "'I'll bring along the tools with me. "'Your old friend, Jimmy.'" On the Monday night after Jimmy wrote this letter, Ben Price jogged unobtrusively into Elmore in a livery buggy. He lounged about town in his quiet way until he found out what he wanted to know. From the drug store across the street from Spencer's shoe store, he got a good look at Ralph D. Spencer. "'Gonna marry the banker's daughter, are you, Jimmy?' said Ben to himself, softly. "'Well, I don't know.' "'The next morning Jimmy took breakfast at the Adams's. "'He was going to Little Rock that day to order his wedding suit "'and buy something nice for Annabelle. "'That would be the first time he'd left town since he came to Elmore. "'It had been more than a year now since those last professional jobs, "'and he thought he could safely venture out. After breakfast, quite a family party went downtown together. Mr. Adams, Annabelle, Jimmy, and Annabelle's married sister with their two little girls, aged five and nine. They came by the hotel where Jimmy still boarded, and he ran up to his room and brought along his suitcase. Then they went on to the bank. There stood Jimmy's horse and buggy, and Dolph Gibson was going to drive him over to the railroad station. All went inside the high-carved oak railings into the banking room. "'Jimmy included, for Mr. Adams's future son-in-law "'was welcome anywhere. "'The clerks were pleased to be greeted "'by the good-looking, agreeable young man "'who was going to marry Miss Annabelle. "'Jimmy set his suitcase down. "'Annabelle, whose heart was bubbling with happiness "'and lively youth, put on Jimmy's hat "'and picked up the suitcase. "'Wouldn't I make a nice drummer?' said Annabelle. "'My, Ralph, how heavy this is. "'It feels like it's full of gold bricks. "'A lot of nickel-plated shoehorns in there.' said Jimmy, coolly, that I'm going to return. I thought I'd save express charges by taking them up myself. I'm getting awfully economical. The Elmore Bank had just put in a new safe and vault. Mr. Adams was very proud of it, and insisted on an inspection by everyone. The vault was a small one, but it had a new patented door. It fastened with three solid-steel bolts thrown simultaneously with a single handle, and had a time lock. Mr. Adams beamingly explained its workings to Mr. Spencer, who showed a courteous but not too intelligent interest. The two children, May and Agatha, were delighted by the shining metal and bunny clock and knobs. While they were thus engaged, Ben Price sauntered in and leaned on his elbow, looking casually inside between the railings. He told the teller that he didn't want anything. He was just waiting for a man he knew. Suddenly there was a scream or two from the women, and a commotion, Unperceived by the elders, "'May, the nine-year-old girl, "'in a spirit of play, "'had shut Agatha in the vault. "'She had then shot the bolts "'and turned the knob of the combination "'that she'd seen Mr. Adams do. "'The old banker sprang to the handle "'and tugged at it for a moment. "'The door can't be opened,' he groaned. "'The clock hasn't been wound. "'Nor the combination set.' "'Agatha's mother screamed again, hysterically. "'Hush,' said Mr. Adams. "'raising his trembling hand. "'I'll be quiet for a moment. "'Agatha!' he called as loudly as he could. "'Listen to me!' During the following silence they could just hear the faint sound of the child wildly shrieking in the dark vault in a panic of terror. "'My precious darling!' wailed the mother. "'She'll die of fright! Open the door! Oh, break it open! Can't you men do something?' There isn't a man nearer than Little Rock who can open that door, said Mr. Adams in a shaky voice. My God! Spencer, what shall we do? That child, she can't stand it long in there. There isn't enough air, and besides, she'll go into convulsions from fright. Agatha's mother, frantic now, beat the door of the vault with her hands. Somebody wildly suggested dynamite. Annabel turned to Jimmy, her large eyes full of anguish, but not yet despairing. To a woman, nothing seems quite impossible to the powers of the man she worships. "'Can't you do something, Ralph? Try, won't you?' He looked at her with a queer, soft smile on his lips and then his keen eyes. Annabel, he said, "'give me that rose you're wearing, will you?' Hardly believing that she heard him aright, she unpid the bud from the bosom of her dress and placed it on his hand. Jimmy stuffed it into his vest-pocket, threw off his coat, "'and pulled up his shirt-sleeves. "'With that act, Ralph D. Spencer passed away, "'and Jimmy Valentine took his place. "'Get away from the door, all of you,' he commanded, shortly. "'He set his suitcase on the table and opened it out flat. "'From that time on he seemed to be unconscious "'of the presence of anyone else. "'He laid out the shining, queer implements swiftly and orderly, "'whistling softly to himself as he always did when at work, "'in a deep silence and immovable.' The others watched him as if under a spell. In a minute, Jimmy's pet drill was biting smoothly into the steel door. In ten minutes, breaking his own burglarious record, he threw back the bolts and opened the door. Agatha, almost collapsed, but safe, was gathered into her mother's arms. Jimmy Valentine put on his coat and walked outside the railings towards the front door. As he went, he thought he heard a faraway voice that he once knew call, "'Hey, Ralph!' but he never hesitated. At the door, a big man stood somewhat in his way. "'Hello, Ben,' said Jimmy, still with his strange smile. "'Got around at last, have you?' "'Well, let's go. I don't know that it makes much difference now.' And then Ben Price acted rather strangely. "'I guess you're mistaken, Mr. Spencer,' he said. "'I don't believe I recognize you.' Your buggy's waiting for you, ain't it? A great, great story from O. Henry. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Join us next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for a brand new story at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And please do share us with a friend and if you have a chance, send us a review, especially you Apple listeners. Thank you for listening. Everyone stay safe out there and we'll be back soon.